Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding shall defend our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself fully and sufficiently to us in your word, that your word is complete, the canon is final and sufficient for everything that we need in life. Father, there is no greater thing that we can do than to study your word, to learn how you think, for as Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. So, Father, we recognize that the highest form of worship is to study your word, to learn everything that you have revealed to us, that it may transform our thinking, that we may not be conformed to the cosmic system around us, but that we may be, uh, as members of your royal family, those who reflect your thinking in everything that we say and do. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of living in a nation where we have such freedoms to gather together and worship freely, to study your word freely, and to teach it freely. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect our freedoms, give wisdom to our political and military leaders, we pray that you would continue to confound our enemies, that you would uh, continue to strengthen our security uh, forces, our intelligence forces, that they may discover uh, the plots against us. And we pray that you might continue to make it possible for us to send out missionaries as well as to support Israel. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would help us to understand what we study, how it applies to us, that we may have a greater appreciation for the workings of the body of Christ, the importance that each one of us plays in the health of a local church through the use of our own spiritual gifts, and that we might be able to understand some of the issues surrounding the controversial uh, and often misguided use of the sign gifts and temporary gifts as you've revealed in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 is the chapter in the Bible on spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts are mentioned and listed in in two other places in the Scriptures, in Romans 12 briefly and also in Ephesians chapter 4. But it is here in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 that we have the fullest discussion of spiritual gifts, what they are, and their purpose and function in the local church. 
So we have done a good bit of introduction to this subject in the last few weeks as we've gone through the first seven verses. And last time we began in verse 8. Now, a couple of things we need to observe when we get into this section from verse 8 down to verse 11. The first thing we need to notice is that the emphasis that these are from the Holy Spirit. We've seen this all through this passage, and the last and final verse of this section states but in verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he will. So what we're talking about is in the uh, function of the Trinity, while all three members are involved in almost everything, and we've studied creation, we've studied salvation, we've studied other areas where you have different responsibilities given to different members of the Trinity, all three are part of the operation, and yet usually one or another has primary responsibility for a particular uh, a particular aspect or a particular task. Here, even though God the Father is involved in overseeing who gets what spiritual gift, Jesus Christ distributes gifts, as we've seen in Ephesians chapter 4. It is the Holy Spirit who is emphasized in this passage as the one who distributes these gifts at salvation. So it is his, at his sovereign will, not the individual will of believers. There's no place for any believer to pray for any particular spiritual gift. You don't have any choice in the matter. It was decided in eternity past, and the instant you were saved, you received one or more spiritual gifts, and those will be manifested eventually as you grow. And as I stated in the introduction on spiritual gifts, we don't even have to know what our spiritual gifts are to use them because some of the gifts are rather broad in terms of their nature, such as the gift of helps or the gift of service, depending on how you translate it. And that can manifest itself in all kinds of different uh, specific functions. So there are different gifts, and each gift is important. And the key is not finding out your spiritual gift. The key is growing to spiritual maturity. And as you do so, you will then become uh, effective in a ministry to the local church. And remember, the function of spiritual gifts is to benefit to serve, actually, as we saw last time in our study of, of uh, 12.7, that each gift is given for the purpose of service to the local church. Your spiritual gift is not designed, uh, with the one exception of evangelism, it is not designed for working outside of a local church ministry. And even evan- the evangelist, as per Ephesians 4, uh, 8 through 12, even the evangelist is given for the purpose of equipping the saints, that is, believers in a local church, for the work of ministry. So all of the gifts are designed to be used within the local church. That is one reason why it is so important for believers, if at all possible, to be involved in a local church. Now, I know and I hear stories more and more from people how difficult that is, and, and it is more difficult today. There's so many aberrations or so many problems today you can hardly find some places where you don't get enmeshed in some sort of trivial superficial praise and worship emotional uh, type of uh, worship service that you can hardly stomach anything that comes after it and that's difficult for people but also you find that if you persevere that many times you can find a small congregation in some area that is uh, at least tolerable now, in verse 8, 
we start listing a group of gifts. Now, this is one listing of gifts, and there's another listing of gifts that we'll get to in verse 28. There are some, there is some overlap between the two, but there are some distinctions. One of the things that you should observe in this listing of nine gifts in verses 8 through 10 is that they are all temporary gifts. These gifts in, in verses 8 through 10 are all temporary. Third observation is that they are grouped into three groups. There's a, a sense of grouping here. Uh, notice verse 8 says, For to one is given the word of wisdom, as we translated that last time, a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the message of knowledge through the same Spirit. And I pointed out that a key word to follow here is the English word another. However, another in English translates two distinct Greek words. The first of those is the Greek word alas, meaning another of the same kind. And the second is the Greek word heteros, meaning another of a different kind. So you have alas, from which we get our word alloy, uh, another of the same kind, and heteros, another of a different kind. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to list these gifts by saying first there's gift one, then there's gift two, then there's another gift two, so those two are grouped together. Then there's a heteros, and now he's shifting to a new category, and then everything in that category is he's going to use alas, and then when he shifts to a third grouping, he's going to indicate that by using heteros and then follow that up with alas. Well, let me show you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 12.8, he starts with the first two. To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, alas, another of the same kind, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. So he links the word of wisdom, and, or the message of wisdom, and the message of knowledge gifts as the same kind of gift. Now, we don't know what, as I pointed out last time, we don't know what these gifts actually were. This is the only time they're mentioned. There's never an example given in Acts or any of the New Testament epistles as to the function of these gifts. And so the best that we can do is some level of inference. And I mentioned several different commentaries who all seem to have competing views of the definition of these gifts. And I just point was used doing that in order to point out the level of confusion that exists when you don't have any biblical, really any hard biblical data to base your definition on. So when you watch these uh, extremists on television who are out there saying, I had a word of knowledge about you or a word of wisdom and God is supposedly revealing something personal, uh, that has nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, they're just having their own little uh, party with their own subjectivity and their own emotions, and they are not involved in getting any information from God. There are some things we can't say with certainty about these two gifts. One is they're revelatory, and that is because knowledge is again spoken of in the next chapter, in chapter uh, 13, down in verses 8 and following, and there it is linked with prophecy. These gifts are both there defined as being partial. That means that as revelation was partial in the pre-canon period, there wasn't a complete or sufficient canon. In the early church age, you didn't have a sufficient Bible. 
It was insufficient because it wasn't complete. So these, one thing we can say about these two gifts is they're revelatory. I think in terms of the use of wisdom and knowledge in the book of Corinthians itself, in this epistle, that wisdom had to do with the gospel because it is the cross of Christ that's the wisdom of God. And knowledge has to do with information related to uh, uh, the spiritual life in the church age, which had not been fully revealed during this early church age period. But I would not want to be too dogmatic on either one of those because, as I have said, there's just not enough information. Then we go to verse 9. Now, notice there's a change. In your English, it looks like the same word, but in Greek, there's a word change. It moves from, let's back up a verse, to another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, and now in verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit, except here, the word translated another is not alas, as we had in verse 8. It is now heteros, which shows a category shift. That's why you look at the, at the uh, original language. There's a category shift. So what, whatever the reason is, Paul is grouping these into three distinct groups. Why is somewhat mysterious, but nevertheless they're linked together in this way. To another heteros, faith by the same spirit. That means... An, by means of the same Spirit. Now, here's a phrase that, that I didn't point out too much last week. Paul is, is, it's almost like he is, he's surrounding the topic. He really wants us to understand that these come from the Holy Spirit. He's going to build. I pointed out already that in verse 11, which is the concluding sentence of this paragraph, he, re, he emphasizes that it is one and the same Spirit that works all these things, distributing as he will. So he, he, but he leads up to that by expressing that these gifts come from the Spirit. First he says, first he says that they are, uh, in verse 8, the word of knowledge, or the word of wisdom, is through the Spirit. There he uses the Greek preposition dia plus the genitive. Then in the second phrase he says the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, and it looks in the English like it's the same phrase, but actually in the Greek it's kata plus the accusative, which means according to the same spirit. And then in verse 9, he uses the preposition in plus the uh, dative uh, by means of the same spirit. So it is through the spirit, according to the spirit, and by means of the spirit. He's making sure that he's covered all of his bases. Grammatically, he has surrounded the concept by using three different prepositions and three different syntactical constructions to demonstrate that in all of its all of its manifestations, however you want to understand it, it's coming from God the Holy Spirit. But in verse nine and ten, he links together several gifts: faith, healing. Working of miracles, prophecy, and discerning of spirits. These five are connected together and grouped together. Well, let's take a look at what he means by these particular gifts. How are we to understand these particular gifts? 
Now, when you get to the word faith, there are some people who want to understand this in terms of saving faith. But that is completely erroneous. Saving faith is is not the subject here. This is something that is given to a believer subsequent to salvation. It is simultaneous with salvation, but it is still logically subsequent to expressing faith alone in Christ alone. So the gift that is mentioned in verse 9 is not saving faith. Last time I pointed out the translation from one of the modern translations called the Message, which is a translation I love to hate, and there they translate this as simple faith. Notice how that, that it's a it's an extremely loose translation, and it reflects a tremendous amount of interpretation on the part of the uh, translator. This is not simple trust. This was a temporary gift that was utilized in the early church due to a lack of having complete canon of Scripture. So it is a special ability to trust God in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances, and I think that it is linked, as it is in this passage, with miracles. Notice you have faith, faith, you have healing, you have the working of miracles, prophecy and discerning of spirit. All of these are supernatural situations. And so this is not the kind of faith that is found at saving faith. Neither is this faith that is used in the process of spiritual growth or the faith rest drill. This was a supernatural kind of faith related to uh, miracles, healing, and other supernatural gifts that were temporary and restricted to the early church age. The second uh, of this grouping is the gift of healings. Notice it's plural. There were different kinds of healings. And these healings were designed as calling cards, giving uh, accreditation to the, to the Messiah as well as to his apostles. This was their function, was to call attention to the uh, the prophet, call attention to the apostle, so that they might gain a hearing for the gospel. It validated what they were saying, but it wasn't the only thing that validated what they were saying. So there were gifts of healings, and these were temporary. Uh, the healing gift functioned in the same way a teaching gift or evangelism gift uh, functioned. It wasn't something that just kind of came on you. It was something that as a person gifted with healing, they could go someplace and they could heal somebody. They could walk into any hospital that they wanted to, walk down the cancer ward and heal people. We look at the doctrine of healing, and in the doctrine of healing, and you examine the many different healings of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, one of the things that sticks out is he doesn't heal everybody. His mission wasn't to heal people. The mission of the apostles wasn't to heal people. They, In terms of all the people they possibly could have healed in Judea, they healed very few. The purpose wasn't to heal people. It wasn't a gift of compassion. It wasn't a function of compassion. It was to establish credentials. Uh, second thing that we notice with healing is that in some cases, 
there is the mention that the person that was healed had faith to be healed, but in many, many cases, the person that was healed was healed without any mention of their faith. In fact, there's no indication whatsoever that they were even saved. See, the purpose of healing wasn't because they were believing that they could be healed or because they were saved and it was a special uh, a special benefit to somebody who was a believer. It was to establish the credentials of the one who did the healing, and it was at their sovereign uh, will as to when they would use that gift. It was up to the person with the gift of healing who they would heal and when, and it was not something that just sort of came on them mystically at some times and not at others. Okay, verse 10, we get the third in this group, to another, alas, to another of the same kind, the working of miracles. And this is just the broad working of miracles. In Second uh, Corinthians 12, we're told that it was the working of miracles and that was a sign of apostleship. So apostles not only had the gift of being an apostle, but they also had other gifts associated with that. I think an apostle probably had all of the gifts. We don't know that. It's not stated in Scripture, but I think that it is an adequate inference from many passages that we have, that they had all of the gifts or perhaps just many of the gifts. So another gift is the working of miracles. This, again, is at the discretion of the will of the individual. He is going to perform the miracle. He is not. It's not something that just sort of happens apart from his own decision-making process. So the third in the group is the working of miracles. And then the fourth in the group is prophecy. Prophecy. Now, I can I have trouble seeing how the last two connect with the first three in this gift, I mean, in this collection. You have prophecy and, and discerning of spirits. Well, actually, discerning of spirits is a gift that was given for discerning of whether or not the prophet was a true prophet or a false prophet. This isn't uh, someone who comes in and they'll walk into a church and they go, oh, I discern a spirit of bitterness here. Uh, that's just typical, emotive, subjective, charismatic nonsense. But this has to do, the gift of discerning of spirits had to do with discerning whether or not uh, the prophet, the person who claimed to be a prophet, was a true prophet based on the content of their prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.29 gives the principle that two or three prophets speak, that is, in the assembly of the local church, and let the others, that is, those with the gift of discernment of spirits, let the others judge. They were to evaluate and discern whether or not these who claim to be prophets were in fact true prophets. And we know from 1 Corinthians, I mean, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, that there were problems in the early church with those who claimed to be prophets and were not. So we have the same problem today. There is a new movement afoot in defining prophecy. There's a new movement afoot today in defining Prophecy, and this came out of what is called, uh, once again, it usually comes out of some aberration of the charismatic movement, and this came up out of the signs and wonders movement. Now, signs and wonders movement is one of many designations to what is technically referred to as the third wave 
of the Holy Spirit in the church age. This is the technical designation and refers to different stages in the development of the charismatic movement in the 20th century. The modern Pentecostal charismatic movement began on January 1st, uh, 1901. So it's a 20th century phenomenon. And it went through the first stage, which was known as classic Pentecostalism. And in classic Pentecostalism, tongues was the necessary sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't baptized by the Holy Spirit, and, and this is a sign of a second level of spirituality. And Pentecostals tended to separate. They didn't just tend to. They did separate into their own denominations. And then around 1959, Dennis Bennett, who was a uh, rector at a Episcopal church out in California, uh, spoke in tongues. Now, Episcopals didn't speak in tongues until he did. And he didn't leave the church. He didn't leave the Episcopal church and go into the Assemblies of God or the American Pentecostal denomination. He stayed in Episcopal. And that started the second wave, they call it, of the Holy Spirit, which is which where they, they had to distinguish themselves from the Pentecostals, so they called themselves Charismatics. And Charismatics also believed that tongues was the necessary sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a second work of grace after salvation. But whereas Pentecostals were separatists, Charismatics stayed they stayed in their denominations. So all of a sudden you started developing Charismatic Catholics and Charismatic Episcopals and Charismatic Pentecostals, which is, I mean, uh, Presbyterians, which is an oxymoron if I ever heard one, Charismatic Baptists and Charismatic Lutherans. And then in the mid-70s, you had the third wave that came out of a church called the Vineyard Church in uh, Southern California. It seemed like everything comes out of Southern California. All three of these started in Southern California. Maybe that says something. I don't know. The Pentecostal movement actually, uh, although it started in Topeka, Kansas, it really got kick-started in, uh, when they had a massive revival at a, down in the warehouse district in Azusa Street in uh, Los Angeles. So I don't know what that says about California. So the vineyard movement starts, and the dangerous thing about the vineyard movement is they said not only, not everybody's going to speak in tongues. Baptism of the Holy Spirit probably takes place, well, it could take place at any time. Maybe there are multiple baptisms of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, something for everybody. I attended a conference at the Vineyard Church back in the late 80s just to have a little entertainment and do some research, and I went to a workshop on how to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Gee, wasn't that fun. And uh, I noticed just the, ins- I want to call it insincerity, but it was flat deceptiveness of the uh, man who was teaching the class. He was, a, he was John Wimber's assistant pastor, and he said, you know, baptism of the Holy Spirit is such a controversial term for so many Christians. Uh, we don't, I, so when I teach this, I don't use the term baptism of the Holy Spirit. I just talk about, you know, getting immersed in the Spirit. 
So I used a play on words. He says, now everybody here want to be immersed in the spirit. Don't you want to be immersed in the spirit? And then he'll just, then he would raise his hands and, and now everybody's immersed in the spirit. And he would use this secondary terminology to get around the issue. And it was just flat deceptive. And then you'd have a bunch of people that would fall down on the floor and they would, uh, start ex- with ecstatic utterance and speaking in tongues. And, and I just kind of stood in the back and wondered if I really ought to go someplace and get a beer. But it was quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting time at the vineyard. But I thought they were deceptive in the way they presented the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you have uh, Pentecostals, you have Charismatics, and then the Vineyard Movement. Now, you, some of this you have to kind of understand, so you know where the players are in our in our modern world. So when you come up with the Vineyard Movement, one of the this was that movement that ensnared three professors at Dallas Seminary back in the 80s, plus some others at a few other places. And um, one of the world-class theologians, and what I mean by that is that he's written a lot and published a lot and was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society at one time, was a man by the name of Wayne Grudem. And Wayne Grudem uh, got involved in trying to defend all this vineyard nonsense along with some other uh, theologians who had gotten involved in this. And Grudem's area of expertise was prophecy. And so he wrote a book on prophecy, and he basically redefined and watered down prophecy so that it no longer would meet the standards of the, of the uh, New Testament. And let me read you a quote from, from Grudem. He says, on the other side, I'm asking those in the cessationist camp, that's us, we believe the gifts ceased, so we're called cessationists. I'm asking those in the cessationist camp to give serious thought to the possibility that prophecy in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to Scripture in authority but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. See, if you go into the Old Testament, you know that prophecy is revealed by God to man, and the test of an Old Testament prophet was that if his prophecy, that is his foretelling, his his predictions did not come true, then he was a false prophet and he was to be executed. Now, what Grudem wants to do is say, well, that's an awfully high standard that every one of your prophecies has to come true to the, to, to the minutia. Uh, if we were to, still under the Mosaic Law, we'd be killing a lot of Christians. So maybe New Testament prophecy isn't that accurate. It's just sort of a, a feeling the Holy Spirit gives you, and you just might get it wrong. So that's okay. So what they did was they watered down uh, the definition. So he taught that that prophecy really wasn't authoritative, but in contrast, he said that teaching was uh, authoritative, which is just some sort of gobbledygook. Um, What we have to realize is that prophecy originates in revelation from God who cannot lie. And whether that prophecy ends up being put into Scripture or not, doesn't affect its infallibility. And just as God guaranteed that the writers of Scripture understood the prophecy that they were given, he would make clear that those who were giving prophecies that were not going to be inscripturated uh, 
would also be those prophecies would also be understood. You see, there were various prophecies. There's a couple mentioned in the scriptures. For example, in in Acts, with the prophecy of Agabus that there's going to be a famine coming, and and a prophecy that Paul would go to to uh, Jerusalem, and he would the Holy Spirit said that he would be bound. Uh, those were prophecies that were uh, given in private context with limited application. But there were other prophecies that were given in the in the New Testament period as well, but they're just not recorded for us. And they had to do with limited application in a limited uh, limited context. Now, one of the ways that these people try to get around this idea of uh, inerrant prophecy is to go to the Scriptures and say there's really an error in one of these prophecies. So keep your place in 1 Corinthians 12, and let's skip over to Acts 21 and see if there's any validity to that. Acts 21. Now the claim is that that in Acts twenty one ten to eleven, Agabus gets it wrong. Agabus is giving this prophecy to Paul that he's going to get bound if he goes to Jerusalem, and we're told in verse ten. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, "Thus says the Holy Spirit." So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Grudem's claim and the claim of others is that, well, it wasn't the Jews who um, who did this. The Romans are the ones who actually uh, tied or, or imprisoned Paul. But the answer is that we have to understand that what Agabus is picturing here is that it is the Jews who are the ones responsible for Paul being imprisoned. It's the Jews who instigated Paul's arrest in Acts uh, chapter uh, 23. And this is a similar statement to the one uh, that Peter makes in Acts 2.23, where Peter made the claim that the Jews were responsible for the th- crucifixion of Christ, though it was the Romans who actually carried it out. See, that's where we get our parallel. That's what's so important in Scripture is when you look at Scripture, you have to find other parallel examples. And so Peter makes a statement. It's a He's pinning it ultimately on the cause, which is the Jews. They're the ones who rejected Christ as Messiah, but they were not the ones who actually nailed Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is the same kind of statement in Acts 21, that even though it's the Romans who are the ones who actually uh, arrest Paul, it is done at the instigation of the Jews. So it was a common thing in the New Testament to speak of the responsible party as the one performing an act, even though they may have done it through intermediate agencies. For example, I mean, another example is in John 19.1, states that Pilate scourged or whipped Jesus, but Pilate didn't personally whip Jesus, he just had it done. So the, the prophecy of Agabus is correct, and it is not just some general uh, general feeling on the part of a New Testament individual who may or may not get it right. 
the implication is still that prophecy in the New Testament would be infallible and inerrant. Now, there's another error that people get into with regard to the New Testament gift of prophecy. And you've probably heard this before, and that is an illegitimate breakdown of the gift into two categories. And what they will do, the way this usually operates, is they'll say prophecy has two aspects. There is a foretelling, which has to do with prediction, and there is a forth telling. See, preachers always like these words that have alliteration and kind of rhyme together so that people can remember things, and they always get into traps when they do this. Foretelling and forthtelling, and what you'll hear from many different sound teachers. I mean, I've been amazed at how many people I've heard say this, is that the foretelling or predictive aspect, of course, died out with the completion of canon, but you still have the foretelling. Now, what foretelling means is the challenge, the application, the mandates to the listener to live life a certain way. And we've studied a prophecy. When we studied Daniel, we saw that there was a lot of predictive prophecy in Daniel, but the purpose of the prophecy wasn't simply to satisfy the curiosity of the Jews as what was going to happen in the future. It was to encourage them that God was still in control, that even though they had been taken out of the land in divine discipline, they're living in Babylon, they're going through all of this suffering as a nation. Uh, the message of Daniel that undergirds everything is God has a plan for Israel and history, and God's in control no matter how chaotic the event may be. That we that is the idea that we would put under forth telling. Well what what happens in this kind of flaky reasoning is that since foretelling and predictive prophecy ended, you're left with foretelling, and this is basically the function of preaching. So then the conclusion is that prophecy in the New Testament age is really preaching. And that's just absurd. It does tremendous disservice to, to any kind of word study on, on either, uh, prophetuo, the verb for prophecy, or prophetes, the prophet, and it does disservice to, uh, keruso, the verb for preaching, or kerugma, the word for proclamation. This is different. Preaching was, today we, 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 we do something funny. And that is we take this word, uh, Kerugma, that's the noun form, and which means proclamation. And the verb form, keruso, which means to proclaim. And the person who did this was called the kerux. Let me transliterate this. This is K-E-R-U-G-M-A. K-R-U-S-O is K-E-R-R-U-S-S-O. And K-R-U-X is K-E-R-U-X. And this is the proclaimer or the announcer. Now, in Almost all the cases of the New Testament where you have this word group, the object of the proclamation or the content of the proclamation is the gospel. It's the gospel. The, the, the K-Rooks proclaimed the gospel. In secular context, a K-Rooks was a herald. H-E-R-A-L-D. Herald. He announced 
for the king, the, the message or proclamation of the king. This was the public service announcement. They didn't have television and radio. So they would send a messenger out with the public service announcements, and his job was to walk through the streets and to make the announcement, and he wasn't to be distracted by people saying, well, when is this going to take place? How are they going to do it? Well, come on, give me some more information. What about this? He just went through the streets and announced the message. So it's an emphasis on the proclamation of the gospel that Christ has died on the cross as a substitute for mankind, and that's the basis for salvation. This is in contrast or not exactly contrast, but this is in distinction from the Greek verb didasko, D-I-D-A-S-K-O, from didasko, which has the idea of instruction or teaching. Or even another word, Katekeo, K A T E K E O, which has the which is where we get our word catechism, which emphasizes uh, more or less a categorical type of instruction. So this is these two words are different. This has the idea of teaching or instruction. This is usually related to post salvation uh, information, post salvation truth, but. Preaching, as we have it in our modern society, is more of a literary or, shall we say, a rhetorical format. It's a certain kind of structure of, a, of an oratorical message, where teaching has to do more with instruction. Uh, preaching has to do with a certain type of oratory. And sometimes you can teach and preach at the same time. Other times there's no teaching whatsoever in what's called preaching. It's more uh, hortatory or exhortational, and it is in, uh, sometimes more entertaining than it is informing. But this idea that preaching versus teaching is a biblical category, as we see it in our culture, is, is a complete misunderstanding of Scripture. And preaching is not the same thing as prophecy. Prophecy, even though a particular prophecy, for example, you can go back into different messages in the Old Testament prophets, and a particular message from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel might really be directed to challenging the people right here today without a predictive element. Most of the time there was a predictive element with the gift of prophecy. So prophecy had that predictive element to it, and we can't uh, reduce it to something else. So it had to do with the giving of special revelation in some sense, whether or not that special revelation ended up being uh, inscripturated. 1 Corinthians 14.29 says that it wasn't just accepted. There was supposed to be uh, some... Uh, evaluation of the prophets and their their statements to see if they were worthy of congregational attention. Now, let's go through a few points, six points, to see the difference between a, an apostle and a prophet. Differences between apostles and prophets. 
Point number one, they're both foundational to the church. That is the body of Christ. Not the local church, but the universal church, the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.20 says that these gifts were the foundation of the church. Now, that indicates something, because if these gifts are foundational, then you don't build a foundation on every floor as you construct a building. That foundation is laid once, and it undergirds the entire structure. So this is a strong argument for the temporary nature of both the apostle and the prophet. And that is going to indicate that there are some gifts that are not permanent through the church age. So point number one, both the gifts of apostle and prophet were foundational gifts for the church, Ephesians 2.20. Point number two, both the apostle and the prophet received revelation and predicted the future. Both gifts involved reception of special revelation and predicted the future. They are distinguished in Ephesians 2.20. So an apostle may or may not have the gift of prophecy, but an apostle still received and communicated special revelation and predicted the future. For predicting the future, you can see John, the apostle John, in the book of Revelation, and John is never referred to as a prophet. He is only referred to as an apostle. Third, The ministry of the apostle was to the church at large. He has a ministry to the church at large, whereas the prophet had a ministry that was mostly to local congregations. He was geographically restricted. Uh, Acts 13.1, you have the mention of Agabus and his prophecy about the famine in in Jerusalem. And then in Acts... uh, uh, In Acts 15.32, and then up in Acts... 21, we see Agabus outside of Jerusalem. So he traveled some, but he was still fairly close. He travels to Damascus. He uh, he travels to warn Paul uh, in chapter 21, but he is still fairly local. You don't find him going to Asia Minor or to Greece or to Rome. So the apostle is primarily a, a broader ministry. He is, he is uh, to, he, he's responsible for leadership and revelation for the church at large, whereas the prophet was more local. Point number four. The specific job description of the apostle and the prophet was to provide edification to the body of Christ by exhorting and comforting the saints through special revelation given to them. So there is a similarity. Their job description, as is the job description of the evangelist and the pastor teacher, is to provide edification to the body of Christ by exhorting and comforting the saints through special revelation given to them. However, for the evangelist and the pastor teacher, the special revelation that's given to us is that which is inscripturated in the Word of God, the closed canon of 66 books of the Old and New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14.3 1 Corinthians 14, 29 and 30, and Ephesians 4, 8 through 12. Fifth point, these predictions included local 
specific time-bound revelations that were not inscripturated. Not everything a prophet said, even in the Old Testament, not everything a prophet said was had universal application and needed to be put down for subsequent generations. A key element, point number six, a key element in prophecies were that they predicted future happenings. Acts eleven twenty seven to twenty eight, Acts twenty one ten to eleven, First Timothy one eighteen, Revelation one three, as well as Paul's prophecy on the way to Rome, which saved the ship from destruction and gave him credibility as God's spokesman. So there was clearly a predictive element that cannot be removed from understanding the nature of prophecy. Now, as a result of this, there were many false prophets that were coming along in the in the early church. And First John one, First uh, John four one warns that many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there's a danger there. Now, the whole point of this is this gift prophecy, and we'll get into it again in detail in this next chapter, is so con- there, there's so much confusion related to that spiritual gift today that people want to reduce it to preaching, but it's not. It is. It has to do with special revelation and prediction. Now, let's review. What we have seen here is the first grouping had to do with a message of wisdom and a message of knowledge, and that had to do with special revelation. The second grouping we had to do with more miraculous things, although the last two have to do with special revelation. You have faith, which was a supernatural ability to trust God in a profound situation, usually focusing on the performance of a miracle, uh, gifts of healing, working of miracles, uh, prophecy, that is, prediction, and discerning of spirits, that is, determining whether or not that prophet was valid or not, whether the content of his prophecy was in line with Scripture and came from God. Then you have the last two. The last two gifts mentioned, and here you have to another, that is heteros. So we have a shift in category again. To another, and it doesn't say kinds of tongues does not say kinds of tongues. There are not different kinds of tongues. Some some places you might even say um, unknown tongues, I think, was put in there. And it is not unknown tongues. Uh, it is to another. There were varieties of languages. That's how it should be translated. Varieties of languages. Uh, tongues is such an archaic term today that we miss the point. It was languages, known human languages. We'll do a detailed study of tongues when we get into the next chapter. But throughout the New Testament, this was always known human languages. It were, they were legitimate languages. It's not ecstatic utterance. It's not gibberish. These were valid languages. And today, with the study of linguistics, a linguistic scientist can sit down with a tape recording uh, of various articulations or utterances, and even though he may not know what any of the words mean, and even though he may have no idea what that language is, a, a linguistic 
scientist can study that utterance and determine whether it's a legitimate language or not. He can listen to the the uh, rhythm, he can listen to all the various uh, tones, he can listen to the vowel pronunciations, and they can determine whether or not something is just gibberish based on the speaker's native language or whether it has a definite uh, pattern of vocalization, word formation, things of that nature. And even though it's a complicated process and you have to have a certain amount of information there, uh, it is possible. And in the mid-20th century, there were many charismatics, uh, writers, pastors, theologians, who spent hundreds of hours trying to prove that these tongues articulations in churches were some kind of language. And no linguist has ever demonstrated that any of those articulations were a language. There have been several studies done by linguists who were Pentecostal, yet they've never been able to document and prove that any of these uh, utterances were legitimate languages. They don't fit the pattern. And they've all had to uh, admit defeat in that area. But nevertheless, we're not going to be confused with facts, folks. We're going to do what makes us makes us uh, happy and comfortable emotionally. And so we just press right on with our heresy. So the last two categories have to do with the gift of languages. There to another different uh, varieties of languages having to do with being able to to communicate the and the gospel and doctrine and languages that the speaker did not go through the normal process uh, of learning. And then to another, the interpretation of tongues, and that has to do with translation, being able to hear a person say something in one language and then translate it into another language. So these gifts listed in verses 8 through 10 are all temporary gifts, every one of them, temporary gifts, and they all have to do with some special kind of, of supernatural empowerment. Then in verse 11, Paul concludes the paragraph by saying, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So he distributes to each one, that is, each believer, as he wills, so that it is dependent upon the sovereign will of God the Holy Spirit and not on the will of the individual. You don't pray for these things. That's another aberration in a lot of Pentecostal services is you have to pray for the gift of tongues. But you don't pray for the gift of tongues. You don't pray for the gift of prophecy. You don't pray for the gift of healing. You don't pray for any spiritual gift. It is given at the instant of salvation and your job is not to try to figure out what your gift is, but to grow to spiritual maturity, and then it will manifest itself. And that brings us to verse 12. For the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, in verses 12 through 13, we have a separate paragraph that emphasizes the unity of the body. Paul goes back and forth in this chapter to emphasize that on one hand there's an importance of each individual believer, and on the other hand there is an importance on the overall body of Christ and the corporate unity of 
the body of Christ. Now, this is something that gets diminished too often in an American and Western European context because in our culture as a whole, we're very strong on individualism. And we're very strong on each individual doing what is what they want to do. And yet the Bible doesn't just emphasize individualism. It emphasizes this responsibility to the body as a whole that we're part of a team. It's not just what you have as a spiritual gift, but the, the unity of the body and that that spiritual gift is given for the health and for ministry to the whole body. So in verse 12, we have an ex- explanation indicated by the beginning uh, of the statement uh, for the Greek particle gore for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, that is all the individual ones being many are one body. So also is Christ. And this is the comparison that Christ is one body and we are all one in that body, which is Jesus Christ. Now we come to verse 13, which is a crucial passage on the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, and we don't have enough time to get into it in detail. This is one of the most misunderstood passages. There's a lot going on in the grammar and syntax of this passage, and it cannot be understood in isolation from all the other passages on baptism. So we will start there next time with the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for the information that we have in Scripture regarding the body of Christ and regarding our spiritual gifts. But more importantly, we thank you for the information regarding how to grow and mature as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that part of maturity is functioning within the body of Christ, ministering to the body of Christ in our area of uh, giftedness, in the area where we have received a spiritual gift. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've learned today. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't have a clue what all of this is about, doesn't understand the body of Christ, has no idea if they're a Christian, no idea if they're going to where they're going to spend eternity, that they would take this opportunity to make uh, that sure, that they can determine their eternal destiny by a simple decision, relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for you. He paid the penalty for every sin that you will ever commit. Scripture says that because we are all sinners, we're all under condemnation. We're all under the penalty of, of uh, eternal condemnation, separation from God, known as spiritual death. But Jesus Christ paid that penalty for you on the cross. And the issue now is not what you've done. It's not your sin. The issue is what you do with Jesus Christ. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a simple matter of trusting, relying exclusively on Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny by simply putting your faith alone, your trust, your reliance on Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. Scripture says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, Father, we just... Uh, Commit these things into your hands. In Christ's name, amen.